This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All rise. Welcome to the Cyber Law and Business Report. Get the top story on the hot button internet legal topics of the day. This is your home for the latest on internet law and policy. Hear the latest net trends impacting business and have your questions answered right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report. Now, please welcome your host, the founder of the Internet Law Center, Bennett Kelly. Good morning. This is Bennett Kelly, and welcome to another edition of Cyberlawn Business Report. We're broadcasting live from the Internet Law Center in downtown Santa Monica, the heart of Silicon Beach. Please be seated. We've got a great show for you today. We're continuing our Miami Book Fair series, and today we have author Sarah Kenzador, the author of The View from Flyover Country, Dispatches from the Forgotten America, and she's also the co-host of Gaslit Nation, a bi-weekly podcast which covers the rise of autocracy in U.S. Co- US in corruption in the Trump administration. Um, Sarah, thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. Um, it's, it's interesting looking at your, your book, um, particularly um, almost right from the start, the... Uh, how you grab and describe flyover country and what's going on there economically. And um, I'm going to read just part of the opening passage, um, which really sets the theme for the book. And um, you say that in St. Louis, you can buy um, a mansion for $275,000. It has 12 bedrooms, eight bathrooms, three 12 bedrooms, 8 bathrooms, a 3-bedroom carriage house, and is surrounded by vacant lots. It was built in the late 1800s, a few decades before the 1904 World Fair, when St. Louis was the pride of America. In 1904, everyone wanted to live in St. Louis. A century later, the people who live here, um, here fear for the future. A child born in Egypt has uh, Egypt, Iran, or Iraq live longer than a child born in North St. Louis. Almost all the children born in North St. Louis are black. And uh, it just paints a, a stark contrast with how a lot of Americans view what, what's going on in uh, America today economically. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly been tough times for St. Louis and for a lot of the surrounding region um, since the recession, but also before that, um, you know, for the last 
four decades, we've had economic decline in terms of uh, factories going out of business, fewer opportunities in manufacturing and in other um, blue-collar work that could pay enough of a wage to allow people to form um, to buy a home and, and so forth. But, uh, you know, one thing I do want to emphasize is that, you know, quote-unquote flyover country um, or the Midwest is not a monolith. You know, we have our own inequality within St. Louis, uh, within Missouri, um, you know, within the states itself. You know, each each state is different and has its own problems. But I do feel, however, um, that in the last 10 years, you've seen this real stratification of wealth between the coasts and the heartland, where you have a few very expensive cities um, that are very prosperous, but also the cost of living is quite high, like San Francisco, LA, New York, DC, uh, versus a place like St. Louis, which is affordable, um, but is really suffering in terms of access to opportunities and resources. And I've seen that in other cities. You know, I, I when reading that passage, I remember um, being in Louisville on business, and I was staying at a bed and breakfast on Mansion Row, and there was an identical house across the street. You know, this was a six-story house with, you know, twelve, you know. 15, 18 rooms, and it was sold for $180,000. But, you know, economic opportunity in Louisville is not the same what it is in L.A. And I, I was going through the book and looking at your background. I, I noticed, you know, for example, you're a Ph.D. in anthropology um, from, yeah. from Washington University in St. Louis, and uh, you have a master's in Central Eurasian Studies from Indiana University. And you actually, you lived overseas, you lived in Turkey, and you, you've done work focusing on authoritarian states of the former Soviet Union and how the internet affects political mobilization, self-expression, and trust. But um, given that international background and your focus on what, what's going on in, in some of these you know, post-Soviet states, um, did that exposure enable you to see things here in the United States that others maybe are missing or just um, had tolerated? Yeah, I think it did. I think especially studying Central Asia, um, you know, which are very corrupt, <clears throat> excuse me, very corrupt states. Um, they're kleptocracies where the government abuses their privilege, their executive powers uh, to enhance their personal wealth, um, you know, and people are, are suspicious systematically denied opportunity and, you know, denied much more freedom than we are. I mean, I don't, I don't want to make that comparison. I think economically we've been heading in the direction of a Central Asian state for a while, but of course we have freedom of speech, freedom of religion. Um, all those rights are, of course, now in question, and we need to fight to preserve them, um, but we're certainly not an authoritarian country in that way. But it did make me, I think, more sensitive um, to the fragility of democracy and to how much people can get away with, uh, how much people who are willing to just blatantly abuse power um, can hurt other people, innocent people, for sustained periods of time without change just naturally coming around. You know, and I think for a long time, um, you know, a lot of Americans thought we were exceptional, uh, we were, you know, 
strong kind of inherently without people making the effort to make our institutions fair and make our institutions strong that you know this takes people to do these things they don't just stand on their own I think we're kind of learning that the hard way um, but it was something I was always aware of because I had seen citizens struggling in these countries for the rights that we in America had been taking for granted and what and going through the book some things just jump out and and just really make you think twice. And uh, for example, you mentioned that the youth unemployment rate in Western nations now mirror or surpass those of the Arab world before the Arab Spring uprising. And yeah. just a very unsettling thought. Yeah, I feel like we're kind of seeing the repercussions of that now. You know, the essays in this book I wrote between 2012 and 2000. 14, um, and we've had a youth unemployment or underemployment crisis for a long time, you know, where young people or people in their 20s and 30s, you know, even college-educated people just cannot find a job that can pay their bills. They can't afford health care. They often can't afford to move out uh, from their parents' home. They're lucky if they have that option, honestly, because it's a place to go. Um, and you see this everywhere. And what that does is it creates social instability. It leaves people with a feeling that there is no future. Uh, it leaves people frustrated and angry, and that makes them susceptible to a lot of things. It makes them susceptible to demagogues, and we've seen that in the kind of right-wing um, extremist movements that are popping up all over the world. I think Brazil is a good example of this because it was younger people uh, who voted their new president in. Um, the U.S., it's a little different. It's, it's older folks who, who voted for Trump. Uh, a lot of younger folks, though, didn't vote at all, which I think is another manifestation of this sort of disillusionment. And so it's really important that people just have some sense of future possibility, um, you know, that their hard work will pay off, that there's equal opportunity, that good jobs and a good way of life isn't just hoarded by people who were born into wealth. And we've increasingly gone that direction as a society where you really have to be kind of exorbitantly rich to feel safe on your feet, you know, to feel like there's a place for you in the world. And that's just a tragedy. You know, that's not what life should be about. Um, it's not what America was founded on. It's, it's the same is true, of course, for other countries around the world. No one deserves that. And people really need to work hard uh, and work together to try to fix this, to try to strengthen institutions and give people, um, you know, a shot in life, because otherwise you just end up with, you know, violence and chaos and, and repression. Um, and I think we've seen that over the last few years. And I think you also call into question our, our priorities. And there was a passage later in the book where you're talking about the drinking water crisis in Flint and, and in other areas, but you focus on Flint. And um, you mentioned that the how um, you, you start talking about the, the various um, corporate projects and the stadiums and how you know corporate personhood. And you said the um, the mortals of Detroit enjoy no such pr protection. Perhaps it's, that is why the city's corporate um, venues, like its high-end golf clubs, hockey arenas, football stadiums. And over half of the city's commercial and industrial users still have their water running despite owing over $30 million while most impoverished residents have their water and their rights taken away. 
Yeah, I and mean, that's a situation, you know, I think Flint um, is, is one of the worst examples of it in the country in terms of that stark inequality and the callousness with which human life is treated. And, you know, I want to emphasize that like, children are being denied water, elderly people, sick people, people who are already vulnerable get trapped in this kind of situation, whereas people who already have all these advantages in life, you know, wealthy um, corporations and, and people working for them are able to just live kind of on a, a separate, uh, you know, domain, like live a completely um, alternate lifestyle, even though they're right next door. And we definitely, you know, we see that everywhere. We see that in, you know, where I live in St. Louis, too, where there's a real dichotomy between how people are living in North St. Louis, um, you know, like the passage you described when we first started talking and how they live further out in the wealthier suburbs. And there doesn't seem to be a sense of, uh, you know, shared commitment to just basic human rights. And in that essay, you know, I deem access to clean water, the human right, you know, these aren't luxuries. These aren't things that people can choose to have or not to have. These are things people need to survive. And somewhere along the line, we decided that that was just optional for some folks. And, uh, you know, we do need to get our priorities in order and just, you know, have a common sense, humane approach to these inequities, um, just for its own sake, just because it's simply wrong. And you, you tell vivid stories of individuals and people you would think who would be doing well in the American dream, you know, educated people. And you know, one example that just stuck me, with me was the uh, 83-year-old um, adjunct professor at Duquesne University who was only making $10,000 a year and had to sleep in her office and was fired at the age of 83 because they thought she was ineffective and then died of cancer months later. Yeah, you see a lot of these kind of, um, you know, these tragedies that go unremarked upon until the absolute worst happens, which is in this case, you know, she, she died um, while still working, while still working below the poverty line um, at that age, you know, where traditionally somebody would be retired and cared for um, and able to, you know, kind of live out their final years with a sense of dignity. And, yeah, that article was about um, adjunct professors. And, you know, I, I focus on that in part because I was witnessing it in academia myself, but, you know, folks living like this. And it wasn't covered very much, but it's also an example of how if you pay your dues, if you get education, if you get, you know, even the highest forms of education, like a PhD or, you know, a law degree, these advanced degrees that are supposed to give you some sort of uh, stability, you're still kind of in the same boat as someone who didn't, only you often come in that boat with a lot of debt, so you have that attitude as well, because there simply just aren't jobs. You know, what happened after the recession was an economic restructuring, where for a while companies were, and universities were struggling to figure out how to, you know, staff people, how to pay for things because so much money had been lost during that crisis. And then they kind of realized they could get away with chronically underpaying their staff or sometimes not even paying them at all because everybody was so desperate uh, to move forward in their career and to get to that stable place. And this went on for years and years. And then around the time I started writing these essays in 2012, it became obvious to me that this is not cyclical. This is not some sort of anomaly. This is a 
the restructuring of the American economy and with the uh, expectations. And I, I got so sad and so frustrated watching people work and work and work for a future that was just never going to come uh, because it's, it's basically a rigged system. You know, like, yeah, sure, sometimes people luck out. Uh, they manage to get that rare job and they do well in it. But, you know, when you've got industries where there's like, you know, 500 or even 1,000 people applying for one position, you know, that's a broken industry. And I see that in all different fields, in, in policy and in journalism, um, you know, basically any field that has to do with intellectual life, uh, you find this problem. And the majority of people in those fields are struggling to survive, uh, which I think can often make kind of for lackluster uh, content or decisions or so forth, um, you know, when somebody has that much work thrust upon them. Or on the flip side of that, you get elite, privileged people that aren't particularly smart, that aren't very good at their jobs, getting into these positions of power and then screwing up stuff for the rest of us because they're just not qualified to be there, but they were able to be there because they had the income uh, to get through the door in the first place. I mean, you, you, you're a journalist, and that's obviously uh, a um, industry that's just been you know, decimated in the last few years in terms of you know, staff cuts, giant um, newspapers closing, and uh, in that those are educated people. They went to, you know, many of them probably went to journalism school or have advanced degrees, and then here they are later in life, you know, still struggling. Yeah, journalism is very hard hit. I think it's lost 40% of its positions in the last decade. And the other thing that happened is that it became uh, geographically dispersed in a very unequal way. Like right now, one out of every four journalists lives in New York, L.A., um, and D.C., I think was the third city. And then the rest live in similarly expensive um, coastal hubs like San Francisco or Boston. And that leads to, you know, a lot of problems where I live, like in Missouri, where most newspapers went out of business altogether or just dramatically downsized. Um, and our area of the country isn't represented at all. But it also means that the average person cannot afford to work in journalism when they make this residency requirement, when they make you live in a place like New York, you know, where rent is like $3,000 a month or something like that, but they're still paying you a pretty low salary of like, you know, thirty dollars or $40,000. Like no one can afford to live on that. Like your entire salary uh, is devoured by your rent. And right. so that means people are getting backup. You know, they're getting help from parents, from inherited wealth, from all this kind of thing. And it leads, honestly, I think to some really bad journalism because you get people who are out of touch uh you know with the average american they don't know what we're going through they don't know the problems people are facing because they don't know other average americans in regular life they just kind of parachute in to see you know how folks are doing every once in a while that um you know and it's a shame and it's also just a shame that local journalism itself has been gutted so much because i think that that was a way that people built trust you know it, it, it helps people have an attachment to their local community be more invested in things in civic engagement and that the loss of that um i think has been really detrimental to the u.s because uh, it's got replaced by you know conspiracy websites and alternate forms of news that aren't as helpful exactly now um i'm this was probably before your time, but you, there was a point when ABC's World News Tonight had three anchors. Um, one was, I think it was Peter Jennings in London, and there was a, an anchor in Washington, and they had an, an anchor in Chicago, um, Max Robinson. And the idea being 
okay, we're going to, you know, that's the fo- that's the coverage we're going to give you. We're going to give you the international world. We're going to give you the view from Washington and what's going on. But we're also going to try to give you the view from the heartland. And the, it was a short-lived experiment. And you and you wonder in light of your comments whether that might be something worth revisiting. Yeah, I, I certainly think it would. Um, you know, and it kind of mystifies me that more media hubs don't base themselves here just because the overhead is so much exactly. lower. Like if you're going to pay for studio space, if you're going to be paying rent, like it's way cheaper um, to host your industry out here. And I think they have this perception that if you're in the Midwest or the South, like you inherently must lack prestige. You must be less talented. Like if you were the real deal, you would have gone out uh, to a big city on the coast. And that's just a, you know, a real misconception that hurts everybody. But yeah, I think the best reporting about a place is done uh, by people who live in it or at least near it enough to see it regularly because you don't kind of notice um, what's out of order or kind of long simmering problems that have been under the surface that kind of they seem like they explode but for people who live there um, you know they're aware of these problems beforehand like for me you know Ferguson uh, for example didn't surprise me because I lived in St. Louis and I'd heard these these stories of police brutality and I also just knew the region was you know kind of a, a tinderbox like we were waiting for that spark, um, but people kind of treated it as if it had come out of nowhere. Uh, and the same thing, honestly, was true as Trump's election. Uh, you know, I thought he would win the primary. I thought he would probably win the general or it was going to be very close. Uh, and people thought I was nuts. <laughs> you know, they really thought I was crazy to believe that. But because I, I was watching folks in Missouri kind of become intrigued by some of the things he was saying, you know, they did, I, I view him as a con man and they didn't see him that way. Um, but on these, in the coast where most of the media lives, they didn't know people uh, in everyday life as often who were planning to vote for him. So they kind of missed the boat on that. And they also missed it afterwards because, you know, he's done nothing to help people out where I live. Like he kept saying he's going to help farmers, he's going to help manufacturers, he's going to help bring back dead industries. Like none of that is actually happening. And I'm not sure that the national media cares. They just kind of view everything as a race you know, horse race politics game. Like, are are the Democrats winning and the Republicans winning? Like, the people are losing. Like, American people in general, coast or heartland, are losing out. And I wish that there was more of a focus on on suffering in everyday life. Now, um, your one of the praise for your books comes from um, St. Louis Magazine, and it says if you follow uh, Sarah Kensler on Twitter, you know she warned that Donald Trump would likely win. And even as Republicans scoffed at the idea, but Kenzie is no psychic. She's just whip smart and an expert on authoritarian governments. She's also the rare writer with an analyst brain and an empath's heart. Both shine in this collection, which take on racism, gentrification, media, the post-employment economy, education, income disparity, and creeping American fascism. I praise. But um, I mentioned that the psychic, I wanted to, bring that out because of the psychic element of your quote and you were someone who was uh for lack of a better analogy the canary in the coal mine warning about trump and uh what what was it that first alarmed you about trump oh gosh i mean a lot of stuff you know trump as an individual at first i thought we were dealing with something along like the lines of george wallace like a white supremacist american demagogue 
uh, you know, who's very skillful at the media. People think uh, Trump is stupid. I, I don't think that. I think he's a, you know, a lifelong con artist who's very good at spin, uh, good at catchphrases, good at, at holding people's attention, and he lacks shame. Which in this culture, you know, this sort of cruel reality TV style culture is, is a virtue uh, for a politician that wants to win and, you know, doesn't care about the repercussions of that. So that concerned me. Um, the fact that he would run America like his businesses concerned me because all the businesses go bankrupt. And I saw him as an aspiring kleptocrat. You know, he reminded me a lot of uh, the dictators of Central Asia, you know, some of whom are very flamboyant. Um, but also do, you know, many of the same things he ended up doing. They put their family in the administration. They're very paranoid. Um, you know, they deem the media their enemy. They have this kind of insular rhetoric uh, meant to keep everybody on edge and to keep people fearful. Um, and, you know, this wouldn't work, though, I have to say, uh, if the country weren't already hurt. And I think that by the time Trump rolled around, and keep in mind, this is his fifth presidential run or almost run like everyone thinks he just was this political neophyte he wasn't he almost ran in 88 and in 96 he ran in 2000 he ran in 2012 this is like the fifth time around that, that trump came out of the gate with more or less the same message uh only now i think because of digital media uh muddying the waters but also because of just the pain that Americans were experiencing economically, uh, politically, the hyper-partisanship of the last, uh, basically since, uh, I don't know, the late Clinton years, last 20 years, um, the two wars, the recession. You know, we've been through a lot as a country, and that's a great climate for any uh, aspiring autocrat to come in and take control. You know, that's what happened in Serbia. That's what happened in Nazi Germany. You know, this is the pattern of history. And I think a lot of folks thought that we as Americans were immune from this because, you know, we've been such a, a long-running, continuous uh, democracy. And they just assumed, you know, checks and balances. Obviously, you know, even the Republicans won't let him get away with things like a, a Muslim ban or uh, pulling out of, you know, NATO or, you know, all these things he wanted to do that people thought were just impossible. And, of course, today he's talking about stripping away citizenship. Um, you know, he... He will try to do these things. Like I, I think people have finally grasped what I've been saying for three years, that there aren't any limits for him and there isn't any bottom. And you, that doesn't mean you stop fighting. It doesn't mean you, like, roll over and play dead. You know, the obligation of a citizen, I think, is to stand up for our rights and to stand up especially for other people, um, you know, who are struggling in this political environment and being unfairly targeted. Uh, but, yeah, you know, we're in very dark times. I don't know what's going to happen next week. Uh, with the midterms, I'm hoping that that um, maybe realigns the balance of power a bit so that he can be somewhat held in check. But either way, uh, you know, it's going to be a very rough three years, I think, you know, regardless who wins next week and regardless what comes around. You know, this is a real uh, dark turning point for America. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll have more from the view from flyover country after these messages. You're listening to Cyber Law and Business Report only on webmasterradio.fm. Stay tuned for more of the Cyber Law and Business Report after this brief recess for our sponsors. Do you look at the task of ranking your site at the top of the search engines like you would climbing the top of Mount Everest? It doesn't have to be. TopSEOs.com knows how hard that climb can be, and they can make top ranking a reality. 
Top SEOs send you to only the right search vendors and agencies that they know will work for you. Since 2002, TopSEOs.com has reviewed and researched the best search engine marketing agencies and solutions providers. Don't risk the cost of falling off the proverbial peak of search rankings. Let Top SEOs give you peace of mind. TopSEOs.com, the independent authority on search vendors. WebmasterRadio.fm is the destination for education, entertainment, and engagement. Engage with our panel of on-air experts and peers by following us on Facebook, Google+, Twitter, and LinkedIn. You can listen to WebmasterRadio.fm on air or on demand from our website or through iTunes, Stitcher, or however you get your podcasts. Interact and stay informed. Just search for WebmasterRadio.fm. Are you looking for the best in WordPress speed, security, and scalability? WP Engine is a digital experience platform for WordPress, powering digital experiences for large brands around the world. With easy-to-use site management tools and powerful do-it-your-way development features, WP Engine gives you the flexibility to build it your way. Improve your SEO and conversion rates with a faster site on WP Engine. Learn more on WPEngine.com. The best gavel-to-gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report, only on webmasterradio.fm. And we're back, and we're talking with Sarah Kenzie, or the author of The View from Flyover Country. And we were just talking about you know, her reaction and you know, fear, I guess, her initial um, prediction about Trump's and that, that he would win and that he would be a dangerous president. And I, I guess when you look back at how you perceive things when, when Trump got in the race, um, did you also have a sense that Republicans would not stand up to him once he's elected? I, I did have that sense after the primaries um, were over because I watched them, you know, kind of started with Chris Christie and then I watched them cave uh, one by one, you know, where like kind of the last man standing in terms of his opponents was Ted Cruz, you know, who wouldn't endorse him at the convention, uh, you know, but then eventually he caved too. They all cave. And the more I dug into Trump's past um, and his political alliances, particularly with uh, lifelong operatives like Roger Stone and Paul Manafort, and then just kind of thought logically, you know, here's Trump. He's a guy who's worked in New York business. He's a guy who's had political connections uh, for 40 years with the most powerful people in America. He has powerful connections in the entertainment industry. Like he's really, you know, had um, like a finger in every pot. And he's just using that to, to dig up dirt. He's digging up dirt about everyone in the country. Uh, he has these tight ties with people like, you know, the guy who ran the National Enquirer and TMZ. Uh-huh. He knows everybody's stuff. Um, and Trump was trained by Roy Cohn. You know, Roy Cohn was uh, Joe McCarthy's uh, lawyer. He was Richard Nixon's uh, aide. He was also a, a mafia lawyer, you know, like a real spine ball. And I assumed, I think rightly, that Trump was using the same kind of dirty tricks to bully people, to blackmail people, to bribe people, to keep people in line. Um, and, you know, and of course, that doesn't mean the Republicans are so innocent. They went along with this voluntarily. I think a lot of them just thought, okay, 
I might not like Trump, but here's my chance to get the absolutely insane policy I've come up with passed. Like Paul Ryan could fulfill his lifelong dream of denying grandmother's health care. You know, things like that. I think, you know, mm. Mike Pence could maybe build a theocracy. Like they thought, okay, you know, here's my time in the sun. But the problem is, you know, once you get on board with someone of his disposition, this is essentially a, a burgeoning dynastic kleptocracy. He just wants himself, um, and I think Jared and Ivanka, to remain in power. It isn't even about the GOP. The GOP got subsumed into Trump. I don't think they saw that. I don't think they had the long-term vision uh, to realize what a danger he was, to, not just to America, but to their own party. And so they went along. Uh, and it is depressing to see because they're, they're sacrificing a lot. I mean, they're sacrificing other people's lives. And for what? Like, for him? You know, it's not making America safer. It's not making us healthier as a society. It's not making us smarter. It's not doing anything good for anybody except for Trump in this little inner circle. And as people like Chris Christie kind of learned the hard way, he'll kick you out of that circle uh, if, he, if he thinks that you're crossing him. And as dictatorships progress, the leader gets much more paranoid and that circle gets smaller and smaller. So if the Republicans are smart, they would fight back, um, you know, just for out of pure selfishness, they should fight back so that they could have better lives. You know, of course, it would be ideal if they were fighting on behalf of, you know, the people they're supposed to represent, the American people. But I think we're kind of past uh, that dream. Um, so, yeah, they, they and unfortunately, I think all of us are going to learn the hard way that it doesn't pay um, to be a supplicant to an aspiring autocrat. It's just not a good idea. <laughs> So we've just come from a remarkable 10 days or so in American politics, from the pipe bombs to um, the president's critics and political opponents to what happened in um, Pittsburgh, as well as Louisville, um, the shooting in Louisville, and and then Pittsburgh, um, the attack on the synagogue, and Within two days, President Trump was declaring on Fox News, I'm a nationalist, not a globalist, and fully fully aware that that is an anti-Semitic dog whistle. And then yeah. to, to, you know, to sprinkle um, gravy on, on, on this, he now is sending today, sending um, troops to the border to um, ostensibly for this caravan that won't arrive for two months if it ever gets to the border. Uh, and then today he's declared that he's going to amend the Constitution by executive order and um, declare that you know, those um, born in the United States to non-citizens are, will, will not have um, citizenship as is provided under the Constitution. Yeah, and I mean, none of that should surprise people. It should horrify people, you know, because I think, well, one, we've already, you know, seen these atrocities. We've seen how, um, you know, the hate rhetoric of the Trump administration has, you know, inspired some of his fans, like the MAGA bomber, to try to commit actual acts of violence. During Trump's campaign, the same thing was happening. In Kansas, there were, uh, you know, a group of guys who bought, like, a massive, massive bomb and were planning to blow up an apartment of uh, mostly Somali Muslims, Somali-American Muslims. And, you know, they were thankfully caught in time, but, 
you know, I remember at the time that incident got very little attention, and I was frustrated because I thought, you know, this is like a harbinger of, of what's coming, and this is an indication of how this rhetoric can really translate into violence. And we did see a huge uptick um, from 2015 on of hate crimes um, and of anti-Semitic violence. You know, this this massacre this weekend is the worst, uh, you know, attack of physical violence on Jews in American history, and it's happening under this administration. You know, you're right. Like he, he doesn't care. Uh, he, I mean, I don't think he cares about human beings in general, but I think he just sees this as like an opportunity to greater, you know, inflame tensions and to make people feel afraid uh, and to make people feel desperate. Um, and he does like to claim this nationalist mantle. Um, I do think that. Not everybody hears the dog whistle. Like I have met people, um, you know, especially here in Missouri, who just think that it's like a synonym for, um, you know, he's he's patriotic, he's all American or something. Like they, they honestly, God, don't know. So there are some people who legitimately are confused by that. But I think Trump didn't say it for those people. He said no. it for his base, who definitely know what that means. You know, they know um, the history of that term. And I think sometimes, you know, what Trump wants to do is stoke that white supremacist base and have them forget that above all, you know, he is a kleptocrat. He's a kleptocrat in a transnational alliance with dictators around the world, with other white supremacist extremists around the world, and and with billionaires around the world. And what they're trying to do is just shake down the world, uh, you know, strip countries down to parts and take it for themselves for profit while carrying out these sadistic policies. And so to some degree, it's a real belief for him. He, he truly is, you know, a white supremacist and a racist. But it's also a means to an end. You know, it's a way of destabilizing society. So it makes all these ill-gotten gains uh, easier to, to do. You know, and that's what dictators have done since time immemorial. And the problem is, you know, you've got to stop this when it starts. Like the time to stop him, of course, was before the election. But then after that, 2017, um, you know, was the time they really should have, you know, honestly indicted a number of people in the administration who've been committing crimes in plain sight. People uh, that are, you know, trapped up in the in the Mueller probe or Trump committing obstruction of justice or emoluments violations. Like those those should have been impeachable and also you know, indictable offenses, but no one acted. There were no consequences, and that just builds on itself. When there's no consequences, they're going to continue to act with impunity, and things that were once unthinkable, like stripping citizenship away from Americans who are born here, uh, become possible. That's very dangerous. And there's one thing that struck me, that I saw a headline that his um, the latest Gallup weekly poll and Gallup actually has switched during the Trump years um, from doing releasing daily polls to releasing weekly polls and that in the latest weekly poll which includes part of last week um, his numbers dropped four four points a big drop in one week and and I used to follow the daily numbers and during Charlottesville you know his numbers dropped he had a similar drop. And in looking at you know, what brings Trump down, well, Trump going, using hate to stoke his base, that's also historically, but what's also driven him down to his lowest level of support. And so Trump is actually engaged in a very high stakes gamble that it, stoking his base will be enough um, of a gain and not be offset by people who are just you know totally um, disgusted by this. 
Yeah. Uh, I mean, in some sense it's a gamble, but we've gotten to the point kind of unlike 2016, where I think he truly doesn't care about public opinion and neither do his closest aides because it doesn't feel that that holds uh, any leverage. It doesn't matter whether we dislike him. The base for him exists to harass opponents, to basically be a group of people he can rile up to carry out violence uh, against Americans so that they don't have to do it. Um, I'm not sure they care that much about whether this is a risk electorally, and that has concerned me for a long time because, you know, in 2017, um, you know, when they first began the Obamacare repeal, which was just, you know, a universally hated act. Everybody was kind of freaking out. You know, I know folks in, in Missouri who, when it was called Obamacare, they were against it. When they realized that it was ACA, they were like, oh, my God, you know, where's my health care going? Right. Uh, like everyone, including Republicans, hated this. And I thought, okay, well, the Republicans are going to have to walk this back. And when they didn't, I thought, they don't care. They feel so confident that this election will be rigged for them somehow, whether through gerrymandering or through uh, voters suppression, um, you know, the new ID laws that come from the partial repeal law, the partial repeal of the VRA, or from uh, Russian interference or election hacking. I don't know exactly what they have in mind, or just refusing to concede. That's one of my worst fears, is that, you know, the results will come in, the Democrats will win, and they'll just like, nah, you know, we're done with that. We're done with that whole free and fair election thing. And so that's how they've been um, behaving. And, you know, the, the comforting thing about the poll numbers, of course, is that the majority of Americans condemn this kind of violence. You know, the vast majority of Americans condemn, you know, the shooting of innocent Jewish people at their synagogue during a bris. You know, the, like almost everyone finds that incredibly horrifying, except, of course, uh, for some of our representatives and people in the White House. And so I do think there's, um, you know, popular opposition to Trump and certainly uh, to extremists, to violent extremists, I'm just not sure what effect it's going to have um, on an electoral level. But it's still good to, to know that just because this is a moral question for America, like what kind of country are we, what kind of people are we, uh, and that those sorts of things that have nothing to do with this kind of horse race politics, but just with who we are as a nation, um, you know, it's something to reflect upon. And the, But there is one thing that's interesting about this and and that is you know he's always focused on you know people coming from overseas and you know the muslim ban or you know we need a border wall but this is something different you know taking citizenship away from people born here and i, I think it's a, a notion that might unsettle people that now it, it it's kind of the um, the old you know hangman poem you know first they came for the foreigner then the Jew then you know people are starting to realize that okay now we're starting to single people out and oh absolutely you know, yeah. wait, wait, where where am I on that list right and and you could see the progression of that from the last few years where it started with you know the Muslim ban and then it went on uh, to DACA and you know now we're talking about um, you know not letting immigrants in, you know, and keep putting migrant kids in cages and separating them from their parents. That was a new level of horror. And now uh, we're attacking, you know, people born in America, like a very fundamental uh, constitutional right to citizenship. And what worries me about this is, you know, he's floated that idea before and so have his advisors, but they now have a Supreme Court uh, that appears to be stacked so that it could do his bidding. You know, I believe that that's why Kavanaugh was selected is because 
he's, you know, in some sense in hock to Trump. Uh, you know, he's basically come out and said he would never prosecute Trump. He doesn't believe he can indict a sitting president. And he seems to have this kind of very, you know, tribal allegiance to him that has nothing to do with following the letter of the law and much more with this kind of cultish Republican party that's emerged. And you saw this when he testified where he was yelling about, you know, the Clintons and the Democrats. Like, that's not an objective person. That's somebody who's just going to do the bidding of Trump. And if he is the deciding vote, I do worry about um, citizenship being taken away. But the thing is, is that that's such a broad category of people. You know, so many people are the son and daughter of someone born outside this country, including Trump's own children, you know, including, like, yes. you know, when he was married to Ivana and Melania, um, you know, also the Trump children would be on, like, I guess the deportation list under that. And, of course, so would Barack Obama. Um, where I kind of wonder if this is like the subtext of what he's saying, because he's been so obsessed with Obama's legitimacy um, for such a long time. So maybe that is something to throw to the base. But, you know, most Americans know people who are, you know, the sons and daughters of immigrants and are going to wonder, well, like, what the hell does this mean? Like, what do you mean you're right. taking away my citizenship? So I think that this will be broadly rejected. Uh, but I worry that they're going to just institute it selectively, you know, where if you are a Latino American, you're going to be more likely to be targeted by this policy than you are if you're like the son of a, a German immigrant or something like that. And we're already kind of seeing little steps being taken in this direction with um, passport renewals. Like this has gone under the radar a little, but a lot of people have had trouble renewing their passports because the government has just said, we're not sure you're really a citizen. And even though they've had passports before, even though they were born here, they have birth certificates, they have this stuff, there's been this kind of rash of, um, you know, really uh, irresponsible refusal to renew. And people have had to go to their representatives and senators to get their passports back. And that worried me. Uh, I definitely would recommend getting a passport now um, before this problem gets worse. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's a signal that we're, you know, going down a dark road. Well, um, we're going to take a different road to, to hear from our advertisers. But when we come back, we'll have more <laughs> from The View from Flyover Country after these messages. You're listening to Cyber Law and Business Report, only on webmasterradio.fm. Stay tuned for more of the Cyber Law and Business Report after this brief recess for our sponsors. Content Marketing World 2018 comes to Cleveland, Ohio, September 4th through the 7th. Learn more at contentmarketingworld.com. Content Marketing World 2018 is the one event where you will learn and network with the best and brightest in the content marketing industry. Content Marketing World will have over 120 sessions and workshops presented by the leading brand marketers and experts from around the world covering strategy, storytelling, ROI, demand generation, AI, and more. Leave Cleveland with all the materials you need to build a content marketing plan that will grow your business and inspire your audience. Save $100 off of registration using promo code radio one. That's radio and the number 100. Don't miss Content Marketing World 2018 in Cleveland, Ohio, September 4th through the 7th. Register now at contentmarketingworld.com. The Web Marketing Association is now accepting entries for its 7th Annual International Mobile Web Award Competition. This award program is an opportunity for mobile developers to demonstrate their expertise in this growing medium. It recognizes the individual and team achievements of web professionals all over the world who create and maintain outstanding responsive and mobile websites and mobile applications. Deadline for entry is September 28, 2018. 
Submit your entry today at www.mobile-webaward.org. That's mobile-webaward.org. There are over 70 million active podcast listeners in the U.S. WebmasterRadio.fm reaches them all with the largest global distribution of any online business-to-business podcast network. We can target and place your message in front of those active listeners immediately. Now, your message can be delivered with less commitment and investment on over 20 hours of weekly original content hosted by the most respected names in digital marketing. Thanks to an exclusive private offer available for a very limited number of companies. But you must act fast. Email brasco at wmr.fm and get your message delivered now. The best gavel-to-gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report, only on webmasterradio.fm. And we're back with Sarah Kenzior, author of The View from Flyover Country, Dispatches from the Forgotten America. The book was initially self-published, and now it is a New York Times bestseller. And she will be at the Miami Book Fair, and um, which is coming up, and she will be speaking on will democracy will American democracy survive Trump? And she's speaking on Saturday, November 17th. At 12.30, and uh, trying to see, is anyone else on your panel, or is that just you? Uh, I think it's David K. Johnston and Steve Almond, and the three of us actually, we did a panel at the L.A. Book Fair uh, in April, so and it, which is available on C-SPAN for people to watch, and honestly, like April seems like, you know, a nice kind of sunny time compared to now, <laughs> so it'll be interesting to see how our conversations changed, you know, over these uh seven-month interim, uh, so I'm looking forward to seeing them again. Yeah, um, yeah Steve Allman um, and David K. Johnson. We actually had David on um, years ago um, talking about his book on uh, taxes, but now he, he's, right. he's used, he used that as a good foundation to jump into Trump world. But um, So before the break, you were talking really about this uh, radical um, notions being put out by Trump, including the fact that he can now amend the Constitution by executive order. I mean, it would be one thing to say, okay, I think this is an issue. Let's change this. You know, let's amend the Constitution. Let's go through the process. But no, he says, I can do this by fiat. And and that's the, you know, even if you aren't alarmed by, by the premise of the policy, the what the more alarming part is that I can amend the Constitution by fiat. Yeah, and that's something that um, the extreme right has been talking about for a long time about you know this desire to amend by fiat and also calling a constitutional convention. You know they wanted to change a lot of these amendments. You know that are the, the founding principles of our country. Uh, basically everything but the second seems to be up for grabs. Right. Um, and so, yeah, that's very frightening. Um, I think the, the timing of it is interesting, you know, like one week before the election, um, you know, to some degree, I mean, it may spur people into voting. It may spur, you know, have an opposite reaction that he intended, which is another reason that I wonder why exactly they're 
um, doing it because, you know, they must feel so confident in their win or just even that a Democratic win would be irrelevant to their future plans if this is how they're going to govern uh, without any kind of uh, input from either elected representatives or the public, you know, to govern like a dictator. And that is, that's the only way that Trump understands uh, how to govern. And he's surrounded by people who are smarter than him about bureaucracy and about how to, um, you know, put, you know, amendments into laws, bills into laws. And that's what frightens me is it's not just him, um, but this little cadre of uh, advisors that he's dug up, which are really just, you know, the worst of humanity in so many different uh, and unique ways in, in terms of each individual. Oh, like Stephen Miller, for example? Yes. Yeah. Stephen Miller, uh, for sure. You know, is obviously one of the worst ones. And, you know, it's bothered me a lot that uh, so many in the mainstream media have given him a pass. You know, I remember on Holocaust Remembrance Day, the New York Times put out an op-ed praising him. I was like, you've got to be kidding. You know, this is a guy who, you know, advocates genocide, who opposes the Statue of Liberty, who, you know, is a vicious white supremacist, and he's actually creating the policies that are hurting children and tearing families apart. Like, how in the world could you support this guy? Like, his whole family has denounced him. So, you know, but we have this kind of elite media that just seems to want to give the benefit of the doubt to all of these people who have really proven themselves to be terrible. Um, you know, Jeff Sessions is another one. And then, of course, the whole crowd um, that helped him get into power, you know, Bannon and, and Roger Stone and, you know, all of these uh, very dirty, uh, very hateful political operatives, you know, that they're who are, that's who guides his decisions. Um, I don't think Trump knows enough about how policy is structured or how to enact it to think of all this on his own. But he's certainly willing to do it um, as long as he personally benefits. And I think he enjoys it. You know, there's a sadistic component to it that I think he thrives on. And some of that is just the feeling of raw power itself and his ability to exert it regardless of the reaction. You know, I think Miller is kind of a, a Roy Cohn for the new, the new millennial. And uh, I, I believe it was he, it was, I don't know if it was him or Bannon who was behind, behind the, uh, in, in 2017, the, the White House statement on Holocaust Remembrance Day that omitted any reference to Jews or anti-Semitism. Yeah, yeah. I think he is. I don't think he's as smart as Ray Cohn. I mean, I, I, mean, I, I, I detest Ray Cohn, but I think he's probably one of the smartest political operatives we had. He just used all of that. For evil, um, I think Miller is more of an acolyte. You know, is David Horowitz. Uh, you know, is a right-wing extremist who brought Miller into the Trump orbit. He hooked him up with Jeff Sessions. Jeff Sessions, uh, Jeff yeah. Sessions was, you know, acting as a foreign policy advisor for Trump's campaign, which itself was weird because Sessions was never really a foreign policy guy, and suddenly he's meeting with all these Russians uh, and not reporting that. So there's a lot of like weird stuff kind of going on under the surface there, but. Um, Miller just, he doesn't have any shame. Uh, you know, he's like Trump in that way. He's overtly evil. He doesn't care if we know he's a white supremacist. He makes no pretense of caring about um, the ramifications of his policies and how they hurt innocent people. And I think the longer he's in the White House, uh, the worse it's going to get. Because, you know, some of similar types are now, you know, ostensibly out of power. Like, Bannon is gone. Seb Gorka is gone. Uh, the legacy lives on in Miller. And, of course, I think these guys are all still, you know, they're working together on the sidelines. Like, there wasn't an actual split within this group because they're moving to the single. They're just, right. you know, either in the White House or they're out, but the control is, is within the circle. 
Now, you you write for Fast Company and uh, among other publications and um, as a contributor. And you, you write in both your academic work and in your um, you know columns a lot about the Internet, um, from how despots use it to how it treats women. I, I saw a quote in your book that uh, the Internet knows you're a woman. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is something, you know, I've learned the hard way just being a woman who, you know, I write about politics, I write about, you know, the dark side of politics, authoritarianism, violence, um, topics that, uh, for whatever reason, are traditionally considered uh, male, you know, and when I'm on a panel, I'm often the only woman there. And when I discuss these things, especially uh, the very human consequences of policies, people often will say I'm being hysterical or other kind of gendered terms. Uh, that they use to describe women who care about the ramifications of uh, of policies that cause human suffering. And so, yeah, it's frustrating because on the Internet, um, it all gets worse. You know, like every female writer, I've endured a lot of harassment, a lot of death threats, a lot of rape threats. Um, and I don't want to say, like, I don't care because, of course, I do. But it was shocking at first, uh, the level of vitriol, um, especially when it translated into real-life uh, stalking and whatnot. But... I've kind of become used to it. You know, I know the precautions to take, and the same is true of my friends who are women who are involved, um, you know, in journalism or politics or other public fields, uh, and that's a big cultural shift. You know, I feel like that's um, an indication of a broader problem uh, of political culture that shows a sea change from when, basically around the time when people started getting smartphones, you know, like maybe 2011, 2012, and now um, in the attitude towards women. Like I keep thinking, you know, I'm in Missouri, and we've got the Senate election coming up. And in 2012, Claire McCaskill ran against Todd Aiken, who made this comment about, um, you know, legitimate rape and illegitimate rape. And if right. there's, um, you know, if, if it's legitimate rape, then you can't get pregnant because the woman's body will just shut the whole thing down. That's what he said. And because of that, women were so upset and outraged, and many men were so upset and outraged, he lost the election. Right. Now, it's, election it's like you get a comment like that every day, you know? Yeah, it, that's true. Um, and that that was the case where it was his election to lose, and he did. And even now, McCaskill is is fighting is fighting for her life. Well, yeah, she's in trouble, and you know, Trump is constantly coming to Missouri uh, because it's so close. And he will make a comment like that, like if Trump said there was legitimate rape and illegitimate rape, like no one would bat an eye. Everyone would just be like, oh, that's just Trump being Trump, and it would barely make the headlines. Like that's how dramatically. Uh, things have shifted towards the worse, uh, I think, in terms of really extreme misogyny uh, in the U.S. Now, um, the uh, the bomber, Cesar Sayoc, uh, the, there's a, a reports that he had made threats to journalists on Twitter, and uh, Twitter did nothing about it. And you know, in light of your own experiences, what what do you feel about that, and what do you feel about the state of the Internet today? I mean, it's very frustrating because, you know, I know some of the people um, who he threatened, and it was clear that this man was willing to act on these threats. And, you know, I've had a, a lot of threats um, over my career, and especially over the last couple of years. And they're not always from Trump fans, by the way. They're just from kind of random, you know, kind of kooks, like, on the Internet. But they're dangerous. You know, they, they have – I have had bodyguards. I have had, you know, bomb threats called into places – we're speaking and the way they find me is online. And 
what's frustrating is that, you know, this bomber was out in plain sight, you know, threatening people, threatening women um, with their lives, driving around in a van with pictures of Democrats, you know, in the target of like a sniper. He was very obvious about what he wanted to do, and he had a criminal record. So you would think this guy would be on somebody's radar and that they would take it seriously. But we've reached this point, I think, where, um, you know, threats of violence are so prevalent. You know, you hear the president making threats of violence, and you also just see constant, constant, um, you know, they'll call them trolls online uh, making these kinds of threats. But, you know, we need another term. We need to stop just labeling that trolling because it often is a serious uh, threat to somebody's life that they plan on following up on. And I never know, you know, who is actually um, planning to kill me and who's just kind of amping up the rhetoric to try to intimidate me or just because they got a few screws loose or, or what, uh, you know, but to some extent you can't be too careful. But in another way, there's very little I can do about it because Twitter refuses to take responsibility for this um, and to ban accounts. You know, they didn't ban his account, even though after, you know, all these people reported that he'd been threatening to murder them, they only took it off after he was caught. So we couldn't see all the people that he had threatened. They were trying to, you know, cover their own tracks. And that's really shameful. And uh, so we only have a few minutes left. And it's Sarah Kenzior. She is going to be at the Memory Book Fair talking about her book, The View from Flyover Country. You can follow her on Twitter at Sarah Kenzior and uh, or at um, sarahkenzior.com. Um, do you have any other uh, appearances in coming up that you want to plug while we have a few few minutes left? Um, well, one in Canada, um, another one in St. Louis on November 3rd at the St. Louis uh, Book Festival. But, yeah, I mean, after the election, I think I'm going to be staying pretty close to home for a little <laughs> while. We'll see how things play out. So, so last question. Um, tomorrow is Halloween. Are you? What are you going as? Um, I I don't really have a costume. I'm just taking my. You're my going kids as a mom. And, <laughs> yeah, pretty much. I'm going as a mom, trying to make sure their kids don't, you know, like OD on sugar or go tearing down the street in the dark. So we will see. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you very much for joining us, um, Sarah Kenzie, author of the View. From Flyover Country, Dispatches from the Forgotten America and Columbia Journalism Review recently came out with an article saying, from Russia to Flyover Country, Sarah Kensier might just be the voice we need. So um, good luck to you in Miami, and thanks again for joining us, and uh, best of luck with the book. Oh, thank you so much. And that does it for us. Um, thank you for joining us for another edition of Cyber Law and Business Report. Um, check out our show notes for your background on the author at cyberlawradio.wordpress.com follow us on twitter at cyberlawradio and check out the internet law center at internetlawcenter.net until next week this is ben and kelly saying have a great week we'll see you here next week The opinions expressed on this program are those of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily reflect those of WebmasterRadio.fm's management or sponsors. Any rebroadcast or redistribution without authorized consent of WebmasterRadio.fm is prohibited. This is the story of The One. 
As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.